folks. This is a fundraising pitch. Uh, you might have noticed that the show's been on hiatus for about the last six months. Okay, why? Well, I've been producing the Korea File ad-free for the last three years. That's 68 episodes. And it takes a lot of time and effort to track down interviews, research, edit, and produce the show. Of course, I gotta work to pay the rent, which doesn't leave a lot of time to focus on the podcast. So I'm wondering, is it possible to turn this into a part-time job? Maybe, but I need your help. Go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and throw me a few dollars a month for the price of a cup of coffee at Tom and Tom's, for the cost of a sandwich at Isaac Toast, you can help turn this podcast into a sustainable project. And patrons get perks. For an ongoing donation of just $4 a month, you'll have access to extra content that you won't find anywhere else online, including bonus interviews and special subscriber-only episodes. If you can afford to contribute a little more every month, $10 donation gets you exclusive VIP access to information about upcoming guests and the opportunity to submit questions for future episodes, a kind of executive producer position. But hey, every dollar helps a lot, and listeners like you can help to sustain this podcast. So if you can contribute, again, go to patreon.com slash thekoreafile and donate a few bucks. Thanks. All right. Here's the episode. Broadcasting from Ann Arbor, this is The Korea File, a bi-weekly podcast about music, culture, and society from around the Korean Peninsula and the world. This is the first of a series of episodes in collaboration with the University of Michigan's NAM Center for Korean Studies. I'm Andre Goulet. On this episode, at a recent NAM Center lecture, Pepperdine University sociologist Rebecca Kim spoke on the phenomena of South Korean evangelical missionaries proselytizing in the United States. Exploring the relationship between the two countries since World War II, her talk addresses why and how Korean missionaries attempted to evangelize, particularly white Americans. Kim also examines the methods and motivations of the Korean evangelicals who have, since the 1970s, sought to bring the gospel back to America. This conversation was recorded in March 2016. You were speaking today about your book, The Spirit Moves West, Korean Missionaries in America, published last year by Oxford Press, right? In your research, you draw on four years of interviews, participants, observation, and surveys of South Korea's largest non-denominational missionary sending agency, the University Bible Fellowship. Who are the UBF? They are a campus ministry founded in South Korea in 1961 uh, that really prioritizes world campus mission. You will, which is the idea that they should send out missionaries from Korea across the world, uh, particularly to college campuses, to evangelize. You describe it as uh, hyper-Korean evangelicals. Right. Intense, biblical, and conservative brand of evangelicism fused with elements from Korean culture and experiences from the Korean War. What elements of Korean culture do you see reflected in the UBF and its values? So I argue in the book that the brand of Korean evangelicalism that UBF embodies 
it's an intense version of Korean evangelicalism. And so to understand that uh, UBF's evangelicalism, we have to talk about what is Korean evangelicalism, which I argue that is um, characterized by intensity in terms of uh, religious devotion, what congregants are expected to do uh, in their religious practice, as well as uh, conservative theology uh, compared to other evangelicals. Uh, and then, um, of course, uh, related to the conservative theology, uh, particular zeal for evangelism, and a uniquely or more Korean aspect of that Korean evangelicalism would be the hierarchical organization of the, um, the churches, which is that uh, it's much more top-down and there's much more respect given to those in positions of power and authority as compared to particularly Western evangelical organizations. What about the role of the Korean War and its aftermath? Uh, what did it play in inspiring or provoking this kind of extreme approach to Christianity? Right. So I talk a lot about how the military context, um, so a lot of the missionaries that I interviewed primarily, they were born in or around the Korean War. And they came of age in Korea at a time where military dictatorships were the norm, where if they went to, and then a lot of the, all the missionaries went to college at the time in the 70s, 80s, um, you know, political protests, government crackdowns on student protests, um, movements for democracy being crushed by government, um, and having curfews and having um, various everyday freedoms curtailed, uh, with the country being ruled by one military dictator after another. So in that context, especially in a couple that with poverty coming out of the war and everything, um, and the fact that there was, you know, invasion from north was imminent at any moment. So, so these were the 70, 80 generation. Right. Do you see a lot of uh, connections between the student movements of that time and the UBF? Um, certainly the context is similar. A lot of the campus evangelical organizations actually have been criticized for, um, if you will, countering the activist student movements. Kind of like, no, you don't use um, you know, human strength to overcome injustice, but rather you know, pray and turn to faith. So there, there's conflict there, but the context of um, this evangelical zeal and context of missionaries' growth and conversion to evangelicalism is... Happened at around the same time. Yes. You talk about a white-dominant racial hierarchy in the UBF and the practice of a theology of sacrifice, where missionaries gave up many aspects of their Korean culture in order to make whites, American whites, mm -hmm. comfortable. So, first of all, what does a white-dominant racial hierarchy look like in the UBF? Mm -hmm. Well, to talk about that we have to unpack a lot of history, which is, um, it's beyond UBF, it go back, goes back to Korean society. Um, and in fact, even the founding of UBF soon after the war was not just, you know, of course, we just in UBF, uh, you just hear about the Korean founder, but really, it was co-founded by American missionary, white American missionary. And it started in a context, and continued the same context today, which is um, in Korea, which looks at white Christians, whites in general, but in the Christian community, white Christians as the model, if you will. I, in the book I talk about not only the big brother country uh, for Korea, 
um, particularly in the context of Japanese colonialism, but also, I would argue, big brother of faith, uh, American white Christians. So what does a theology of sacrifice look like? Theology of sacrifice, again, we have to go back to that context in Korea when there was a lot of suffering and struggle. And in that context, these missionaries had this soldier spirit mentality, which is we're like uh, spiritual warriors uh, for the sake of world campus evangelism. And since they are Jesus soldiers, um, ready to battle for souls across the world, uh, important part of that theology of sacrifice was sacrificing immensely for the sake of the gospel, in this case, converting um, people across the world, and in this particular context for the book, um, converting Americans, and specifically white Americans. You, you talk about uh, an example of a woman talking about curling her hair, giving up kimchi, right, uh, right. someone eating hamburgers every day right. in order to be more American. Yes. And realistically, they had to do that given that the American religious landscape is generally racially segregated. More than 80, 80, you know, 80% of the churches, uh, that's just a very uh, conservative number, but um, are racially segregated. And certainly if you look at the uh, immigrant congregations, specifically Korean immigrant congregations, uh, they're ethnically homogenous. So to go against that predominant pattern and engage in cross-cultural, cross-racial evangelism, <laughs> sacrifice is a must. In fact, Koreans were not welcome to join UBF. UBF uh, proselytized exclusively, proselytizes exclusively to white kids on campus. Initially, that's what they did mm. when they came. Because the idea is, you know, Korean students will naturally flock to other Koreans. So since that's the reality, um, they actually turned away Koreans who would, through natural social networks, come to their uh, ministry and instead went after um, non-Koreans, particularly whites. Because the fear is, if they just let Koreans, nat uh, through natural social work networks, come to their organization, it will become yet another Korean ethnic organization, Korean immigrant church. The initial wave of UBF missionaries included your parents. When did they come to the U.S.? So the initial wave, they started early 1970s, early or mid-1970s. Um, and 1980s, and that, those are the two waves. Well, I mean, I would almost put them together, 70s, 80s, um, as the uh, initial wave, yeah. What was it like to grow up uh, within that faith and within that movement? Um, what is it? That's a very broad question. What is it like personally? What is it like religiously? Um, what is it like? What is it like as a Korean-American? Korean-American. Okay, so one thing that I thought was distinct that even spurred my first book on Korean evangelicals is that I assumed that going, uh, being cross-cultural and extending beyond ethnic racial boundaries was a norm for Christians. That's what you do. And that the first identity is um, the Christian faith. And secondarily, you have all these other identities, but that's the primary identity. Um, for, uh, from which people can, uh, you know, unite. Um, but I found very, not, it was very naive of me to go to campus and realize, no, segregation and separation is a norm. So that, as a Korean-American, that was shocking because I thought Christians, you know, 
really naive, but I thought, hey, we all worship together no matter what. The UBF missionaries believed that white students would become the future leaders of the United States and hoped the students would help restore America to what they saw as its former commitment to Christ. Has that perception changed since the foundation of the movement? And how has that progression worked so far? So they definitely believe that initially, and it has also definitely changed since. And I talk about why that is. I mean, first of all, it's just demographics, but certainly a lot of the criticisms that they've had over the years about that focus, whether internal or external, have led them to realize you know, Americans are not just, real Americans are not just white students. Rebecca Kim is a Pepperdine University sociologist. Her book, The Spirit Moves West, Korean Missionaries in America, is available from Oxford Press. Looking forward to hearing your talk today. Thank Thank you. That's the career file for this week. To see Rebecca Kim's full Nam Center lecture, check out The Spirit Moves West, Korean Missionaries in America on YouTube and subscribe to the Nam Center's YouTube channel at UMICHNCKS. That's U-M-I-C-H-N-C-K-S. You can find new episodes of The Korea File on iTunes and Stitcher and as a featured contributor at koreafm.net, koreabridge.net, and Anglo Info Seoul. Find them and like them on Facebook. You can find The Korea File there, too, and on Twitter, at The Korea File, with daily links and current news about the peninsula. And please rate us on iTunes. Each review helps new listeners discover the show. Check back wherever you found this podcast in November for another interview in collaboration with the NOM Center for Korean Studies at the University of Michigan. Until then, thanks for listening. From Ann Arbor, I'm Andre Goulet.